Today, as we continue our study sequentially through God's Word, we come to what is arguably uh, the best known and maybe the most beloved of all the parables. It's right up there with, uh, with the Good Samaritan. Uh, this one known mostly as the parable of the prodigal son. But as you see, and as we will read together today, this is not just about one son, uh, but about two. Uh, two lost sons and the father who pursues them. We find our reading today beginning on page 874, if you happen to have an ESV. Uh, today reading Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, and we will read through the end of the chapter uh, through verse 32. Uh, before we read God's word together, join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of it. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for your living and active word, and as we read it, we pray that you would cause it uh, to lay us bare. We thank you for the gospel, which is the power of salvation, uh, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who helps us and gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe and to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to join me in standing as we give attention to the reading of God's word, as we find it in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, that is, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and... Go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and, bring a, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may be seated. In the book, uh, titled A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit recounts the efforts of a rescue team uh, to find an 11-year-old boy who was lost in the Rocky Mountains. This 11-year-old boy was completely deaf, and he was nearly blind, and during a game of hide-and-seek, he wandered away from his campsite and became lost. And They searched, and after a very cold night in the woods, the boy was found, hunkered down, and blowing the emergency whistle they gave him and told him to blow if he should become lost. Well, Solnit goes on to say that, statistically speaking, children actually are, are more likely to be recovered in a rescue situation than adults, and this for the simple fact that children are more likely to admit that they need to be rescued. Lost children, she says, tend to find shelter and, and wait to be found. Adults try harder to find their own way out, and in the process, they wander farther and farther in the wrong direction. Now, spiritually speaking, we understand that there is more than one way to be lost as well. There are people who are lost, and they know it, and there are people who think that all they need to do is keep hiking in their own direction. And our parable today is about two ways to be lost. You notice verse 11, Jesus begins by telling us there was a father who had two sons. And one of those sons, we find, wandered into a far country, and the other one stayed working in his father's field. But despite the proximity, or lack thereof, from the family, each of these sons had a heart that was far from their father. St. Augustine, in his autobiographical prayer, confessed to God, he said, For it is not by our feet nor by change of place that we turn from thee, or that we return to thee. But in darkened affections lies the distance from thy face. So this parable is about two lost sons. It's about two lost sons, and it's about the father who urges both of them to come home. This parable has often been called, it's been known as, the gospel within Luke's gospel. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about it because of the way that it reveals God's heart for sinners. And so with that in mind, I want to look together at least at the first uh, two portions of this passage with that great gospel verse before our minds, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, in verses 11 to 16, Jesus is teaching us about the wages of sin. Verse 12, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. I bet that if you've been around the church long enough, you've heard a sermon or maybe two or three already on the prodigal son. And most of them begin here, and most of them begin by pointing out uh, just how hurtful this must have been to the father. This statement from this younger son is tantamount to something like, Dad, I wish you were dead already. Because if the father was dead, and once he was dead, the estate would be divided. It would be divided two-thirds for the older brother and one-third for the younger brother, according to Deuteronomy. 
But once he was divided that way, well, then the, the younger son could get on with his life already. And he'd had enough of living at home. He was always under the father's thumb. He was always under the father's microscope. And there was a whole world out there that he wanted to indulge in. If only he could get away from that omnipresent gaze of father knows best. And Kent Hughes says that life for the younger son had become claustrophobic in his father's house. So he makes his request. And it cuts like a knife. And in our psychologized society, we want to, to zero in on how hurtful it was. That's probably not what Jesus' original hearers were thinking. It was hurtful, of course, but, but instead of being scandalized by how painful this request was, they would have been focused on how shameful it was. This is a traditional society. They would have heard in this request a son publicly complaining about his father's decisions and denying his father's authority. It was a claim of malpractice. You know, dad doesn't know what life is all about. His, his whole world, his whole universe is so small that he thinks everything revolves around the farm and around the work and, and that, that dull repetition of planting and harvest and, and planting and harvest. And if I wait around for dad to leave the decisions to me, I'm either going to be too tired to make the most of it or I'm going to be too old to, to enjoy it. And this was a mid or maybe lower level manager walking into the CEO's office and saying, you know, I could run this company better with my eyes shut. And in this culture, the father was completely within his rights to drag this rebellious son before the gates of the city and disown him with a slap across his insubordinate face. Perhaps most surprisingly of all, the father agrees. We learn that he divides his property between them, that is, between both of them. He gives both sons what the younger son asked for, and the younger son takes his newfound wealth as his ticket out of his father's house. The language there in verse 13, that he gathered all he had, it means that there was a fire sale. It means that he converted all of his wealth into cash. And so here are flocks and here are herds. Here is property passed down for generations, given all the way back perhaps from the time of Joshua, allotted to his family, allotted to his tribe, the collective wealth of parents and grandparents and their parents before them, and it all goes up on, aux on auction. And he fills his pockets fat with $100 bills, and he goes off into the far country. And it was Jonah fleeing to Tarshish. It was every adolescent man closing his ears to the wisdom of his parents. It was every sinner straying like sheep, each of us turning aside to our own way. But then Jesus has this tasteful discretion, and he tells us that it all went predictably pear-shaped. We could add in the Lord details later if we want to, like the brother did. And we're not sure about what the brother had to say. Maybe it was true, or maybe it was simply vindictive when he said that this son of yours has devoured your estate with prostitutes. Jesus doesn't tell us that much, but actually that's the kind of thing that you could do with the resources that he had. There are places you can go, there are people you can meet, and they can make any illicit desire happen if you're only willing to pay for it. But Jesus only tells us that he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 13, 
that reckless living. This is, this is where the language of the prodigal shows up in uh, some translations in, in the older version of, of what we call this, the prodigal son. Prodigality is a word we don't use a whole lot anymore, but it means uh, wasteful living. Spending money, like money is going out of style, and you've got to get rid of it before it, somebody looks at you and says, ooh, you have money. Oh, how distasteful. It's spending money just to prove that you don't mind spending money. It's spending money so that other people will look at you and say, he really knows how to spend money. And actually, you can gather quite an entourage with that kind of living. People love to hang out with somebody who does that sort of thing. And you can, you can film your music videos where you stand on the hood of the Lamborghini and you take stacks of cash and you throw them in the air and everybody says, that's a witty person and I want to be next to him and I want to I hang out with this person. His jokes are wonderful. He's so great to be around and everybody loves the life of the party so long as you're picking up the tab at the end of the night. But if you surround yourself with friends that can be bought, you should also be prepared for those friends to disappear along with the money. That's exactly what happened in Jesus' story. The end of the prodigal's cash flow coincided perfectly with a divinely appointed famine. And by the end of verse 16, this young man is friendless, and he's starving, and he is completely disgraced. It is hard for us to imagine the horror, I thought this week, what, what could possibly coincide in, in our culture? What, what would be this horrific for a Jewish mind, a good boy from Galilee who not only uh, hires himself out to, to feed and to herd unclean swine, but, but he's so debased that, that from time to time he even perhaps dips his mouth to fill his hungry belly with a sip from the slop bucket. There's very little in our culture that is that distasteful. There's, there's no possible way that this young man could have sunk any lower. He had disgraced his father. He had denied his inheritance and his heritage. He had thrown out his birthright and traded it for a single bowl of stew. And now that meal is gone and the only thing that is left is heartburn. And it's a picture. It's a picture of sin, and it's a picture of sinners. It's not a picture of every sinner, actually. Uh, incidentally, not every sinner looks as outwardly disgusting as this boy did, with his clothes caked in, in, in pig manure, his head leaning toward the feeding trough. There are all kinds of sinners, and not all of them appear as revolting as this young man's. Now, it's possible, actually, to be an angry, sinfully angry person, and not actually to kill your neighbor. It's possible to, to overindulge every once in a while and never wake up with a second DUI and a hangover in a prison cell while you're sleeping it off. It's possible to be perverted without becoming a prostitute or, or a pedophile. This is not meant to be a picture of every sinner. This is meant to be a picture of the worst kind of sinner. It's a picture of those who have carried their sinful self-indulgence to its logical conclusion. Rebellion against God has been given completely free reign in the sinner's life, and it has produced the inevitable slavery. And the sinner is left empty and starving and dying and alone. It's a picture of the covenant child. 
the former covenant child who steals from his grandmother to feed a meth habit. That's who this is. This is a picture of the pastor who is arrested when the parents find out that he's been preying on the boys in the youth group. This is meant to be a picture of the sinners who turn our stomachs. And that was the point. This boy was like the tax collectors. He was like those Jews who had broken with their countrymen and they had traded their synagogue membership for a chance to feed from the Roman trough. He was like those gutter-dwelling sinners who came and flocked to Jesus, and as they did, they spread the stench of the disgrace of their sin all throughout the city, and everybody saw them coming. He's an outward picture, this boy, of sin personified, thumbing his nose at God the Father, dying and alone in filth and degradation, and the wages of sin is death. And actually, it's important that Jesus begins his story with the worst kind of sinner. Because he's showing us that if there's hope for a sinner like that, there's hope for a sinner like you. So beginning in verse 17, Jesus teaches us about the gift of God. We've seen the wages of sin and now the gift of God in verses 17 to 24. But actually, the, the gifts begin way before verse 17. Don't forget uh, that act of God that Jesus identified as a famine. It was a gift. It was a wonderful thing for this young man. John Calvin says it this way. He says, to this young man whom abundance rendered fierce and rebellious, to him hunger proved the best teacher. It was a gift of the Lord. To teach him a lesson, to, to teach him of his need, to teach him the lesson of repentance. So verse 17 says that he came to himself, or maybe your translation says that he came to his senses. That's what it was. It was a return to lucidity. It was spiritual rationality returning to his mind. It was, it was him finally waking up and seeing about his life all those things that everybody else saw so clearly, but he had tried to stuff and ignore his whole life perhaps, and now he finally sees it. And when he awakes from his stupor, he realizes what, or perhaps rather who, he has walked away from. Because he hasn't just turned his back on bread and shelter and an inheritance, he's turned his back on his father. A generous father, for all his complaints about his mismanagement, a generous father who provides for all the members of his household, down to the very least, all the things the world could not offer him. And maybe for the first time he feels the shame that he heaped on his father's shoulders when he asked for his share of the property. And in that moment of clarity, his thoughts turn, not to how hungry he is, but to how sinful. He expresses sorrow not only for what he had lost, but for what he had done. And if you wonder what repentance ought to look like, here's a really good example. You notice that there is no equivocation, there is no rationalization, there's no self-justification. He doesn't plead any special circumstances. He doesn't shift the blame to anybody else. He doesn't say, you know, Dad really is the one to blame here. 
He should have known that what was going to happen. He was, he was charged with looking out for me. And of course you don't give a young man all that money and send him off into the world. What kind of crazy father would do that? He doesn't, he doesn't try to blame somebody else for what's happened. He's just returned to his senses. He doesn't even try to claim uh, temporary insanity. He identifies his sin with God's vocabulary. He calls it what God calls it. He admits where he's gone wrong, and he prepares himself for the consequences. That's what confession looks like. When you own up to what your sin is and what your sin has caused, and you prepare yourself willingly to receive whatever the Lord has for you in response. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. Not home. He doesn't say I'm going home. He doesn't say I'm going to my village. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And we have no idea how long it took him to get home. You can imagine, however long it took, it was a pretty long and solemn walk. It was also a potentially dangerous walk. Not because of robbers, not because of heathens along the way. It was a dangerous walk because of what he might walk into when he got home. Because of the potential anger of his father. It was one thing to, to dishonor your father, but it was a completely different thing to eat and drink his estate into oblivion. This is exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 21 was talking about when it said that the gluttons and drunkards who refuse the voice of their parents, who will not listen to their father and mother, they ought to be put to death by communal stoning. And again, the father is within his rights to drag him into the middle of the city and execute the judgment he has coming. And the son has no idea. He has no evidence. He has no hard proof that the father won't do exactly that. He has a hunch. He has a hope. He doesn't know if the father will kill him or if the father will beat him or if the father will simply humiliate him and send him away empty, but yet he gets up and he goes. And he hopes in the father. He places himself at the mercy of his father and he hopes for some meager acceptance. Now, I think, and I've realized this week, as, as I have read this passage before, and you probably have as well, Every time I've come to verse 20, I think I've always seen it in my mind's eye from the vantage point of the father's villa, right? There's, there's the father, and it's this amazing picture because the father's watching. Uh, maybe sometimes he takes a stroll in, in the garden, and, and, and his wife catches him always staring off into the distance, and she asks him what's, on, what's going on, and, and oh, nothing. But he's been looking. You know he's been looking, scanning the horizon for that figure of his son shambling over, over the top of the mountains. Maybe he's coming. Maybe today's the day. I've always seen it from, from that vantage point, the father waiting for his son to come home. But I think actually Jesus wants us to see it the other way around. Jesus wants us to feel the surprise of this son who's been traveling and practicing his speech. It shows up verbatim, word for word. He's memorized it on the way home. He wants us to feel the surprise of this son who's been, been wondering and walking and wondering how the father will receive him and what will he say and is there even room for a screw-up like me in the quarters where the servants sleep? And we're supposed to see, I think, not the prodigal coming home, but the father running to greet him from a long way off. 
And we're supposed to see him trotting, red-faced and breathless, and he's got his robe cinched up around his thighs like some gangly teenager, and he doesn't even run like a normal person. He doesn't move his arms because for the last eighth mile, he's got them stretched out, ready to embrace his son. We're supposed to see the servants running after the old man because actually in this culture, no man of any respectable status would do anything more than saunter anywhere. And if the master is running, there's got to be an emergency and we've got to find out what's happening. As he gets to his son, we're supposed to see the the tears of joy streaking and streaming into his beard. As the son sets down his his shameful head, and he begins his monologue, we're supposed to see the father lift his chin so he can hug his neck and kiss his filthy cheeks. And as the son gets to the point where he offers, he asks, really, it's all he can do, please, father, let me, let me serve you. As he gets to the point where he asks if maybe he could become a servant, we're supposed to see the father interrupt him and bring out all the symbols that that signify a beloved son. The robe, of course, was was the best garment in the house. It wasn't worn by anybody, not even by the father. It was just kept clean, and it hung there, and it was ready so that if a a local hotshot showed up for a visit, they could bring it out, and they could drape it over his shoulders, and it was a symbol of honor. Here's a boy fresh from the pigsty, and he says, get the Get the finely twisted linen and the gilded garment and and the purple that we've got waiting. Bring it out and put it on him. And the ring, uh, as you probably know, was something like a a driver's license and a master card and a family crest all rolled into one. It was something that he would wear into the marketplace as a symbol that he was a member of this household and he represented the father in public. And the shoes marked him out as a free man because slaves were denied the luxury of footwear in this culture. And then the feast and the dancing and the fattened calf for dinner and all because this lost son had returned because the dead had been raised to new life by the side of the father. It's another spiritual picture. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18, God says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. Isaiah 65, verse 24, he tells us, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. See, it's a picture of the Father, isn't it? And this Father is a welcome call to lost sinners who wonder whether God can be trusted with their unworthiness. for the tax collectors and for the wretches who are standing on the periphery of Jesus' ministry and they're wondering if they can come near without being rejected. The arms of the Father speak of forgiveness. They offer pardon for all the ways that they have wasted God's gift and they've denied his authority and they've ruined themselves with self-indulgence. It was also a rebuke to those hypocrites who were so appalled back in verse 2 that Jesus welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Do you notice in, in this passage, Jesus is declaring that actually not only does he receive sinners, but he runs to them. And it's hard to tell, is, is the father the father or is the father the son? 
just like we saw in the previous passages where they were emblems really of the son who goes out looking. Is, perhaps this is speaking of Christ. The triune God, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit receiving sinners running to them. Christ stretching out his arms to embrace them, to offer them life at Calvary. And all the members of the household of God rejoice when sinners come home. Because we also know what it is to be welcomed when we don't deserve it. We know what it is to be made God's children when we have made ourselves his enemies. And this is a call to you, dear sinner. This is a call to you not to equivocate with your confession, not to imagine that there is something you can tell God about who you are and what you've done that he is going to find repugnant enough to say, oh, I can't listen to that. There is no deed so vile. I know that in in our churches, and churches like ours, we like to say, well, here are the sins that we talk about. Here are the sins that we use as sermon examples. And there's everybody else out there. And we're kind of nice in here. And all that stuff, that's off limits. There is no deed so vile. There is no desire so abased. There is no rebellion so severe that it can keep repentant sinners from the mercy of God for his children. And when we make our first motions toward confession, God doesn't cross his arms and wait until we've cleaned ourselves up. He doesn't take us in on a sort of temporary probation and say, I've got my eye on you. (laughs) I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see if it sticks. He wraps his fatherly arms around us. And he lifts us to our feet and he says, this my child was dead and is alive. She was lost and she's found. That's what he says. And sons and daughters come home to the father through faith and repentance. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's not the end of the story. Not yet. This is a father who had two sons. There's one lost son so far who has come home, and there's another one actually who never left. He's still just as lost. If the younger son shows us the wages of sin and the father reveals the gift of God, then the older son shows us the deceit of pride. This is our final point today, the deceit of pride. Now, Dale Ralph Davis calls this whole parable the the parable of the Presbyterian son. (laughs) I like that. Actually, he's, he's right, technically, because the word uh, in verse 25 for older actually is presbyteros, presbyterian. Uh, and there is a sense in which Jesus has been aiming in this direction for the whole parable. This has been his point to get to the presbyteros, the presbyterian son, the older son. He's been telling this story to, in, in a sense, against uh, the scribes and the Pharisees as they grumble. Don't forget all that unfinished business that we saw last week. In the previous two parables, the shepherd found his sheep, and then the woman found her coin, and then they gathered their communities to celebrate. And it was left open-ended. Will they come in? Will they not come in? Will they stay out? Who will join the celebration? And verse 25 picks up where those ones left off. And there's music, and there's dancing, and there's the smell of a feast, and the older son stands outside fuming. Now, it's important to understand his refusal to come in, especially for the conversation that follows 
because remember that in this culture, celebrations were a social duty. It wasn't just something you decided to do or not to do, especially if you were the, uh, the namesake for the family, the oldest son, the one that would carry on the honor of this family. The way that you supported families and, and one another in this day was, was to laugh with those who laugh and to mourn with those who mourn and to party with those who party. Back in, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was asked a question about fasting. You may remember. And he responds with a question of his own. He says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He asked a question of can. Not a question of should, but a question of can, as in, is it done? Would anybody do this? Can you conscionably tell the guest of a feast not to eat while the feast and the food is set before them? Well, you would never do that unless... You really wanted to shame and dishonor the bride and his father and their family. And so you see that when the son returns from the field, he is presented with a choice. Is he going to join his family in celebrating his brother, or is he going to refuse his duty so he can stay outside and lick his wounds and think himself important? In other words, is he going to go inside and support his father, or will he stay outside and shame him? Well, the Presbyterian son makes up his mind. And for the second time in a single day, this old man pursues a lost child to bring him in. And really, it's in this conversation uh, with the older brother, the, the father and the older brother, that we learn just how lost this man is. He's so lost, we could say, he's so lost that he, uh, he thinks that sonship is something to be measured by servitude. Look, he says, these many years I've served you. Actually, the word is better slaved. I've, I've slaved for you these many years. That was his primary self-justification. That was his primary connection to the Father. It was what he thought uh, made him such a wonderful son, what made his brother such a louse. It was something that could be measured in sweat equity. He's not like that good for nothing. He never took a day off. He never went on vacation. He never stopped working before the sun went down. His whole life has been nothing but drudgery, and shouldn't that count for something? But it's revealing, isn't it, that he can't even bring himself to call his father, Father. Look, he says, as in, listen here, old man. I'm going to tell you what I do for this family, and you're going to listen to me. I'm going to tell you the kind of rights that my service buys in this household. How different from the son who came near in verse 21, saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. How different from the son who is willing to surrender his rights in order to come near to the household. Well, the older brother doesn't even know what it means to be a son. He's so lost that he thinks forgiveness cheapens obedience. Notice the comparison that he draws between himself and his brother. He says, I never disobeyed your command. This son of yours, however, has devoured your property with prostitutes. Again, that last statement. It, it could be his own interpretation or it could be very well true. But the point here is that he's making a moral judgment based on perceived personal 
righteousness. He's saying, he doesn't deserve your love, and I don't deserve your displeasure. He's done everything wrong, and I've done everything right, and only a blind and ignorant father would celebrate him and ignore me. He's looking for recognition. He's crying out for somebody to pat him on the back. He's practically demanding that somebody take notice of how squeaky clean he's always been. And even if it were true, which it's not, even if it were true that the son was flawlessly obedient, his problem is that he thinks that forgiveness for someone else cheapens his own achievement. Because if forgiveness can be had for nothing, what on earth have I been slaving for? What has all my, my duty and, and my work been about if I don't get anything for it? And actually, that leads us to the final statement that, that reveals how lost he really is. He's so lost that he can't see that he wants his father's gifts instead of the father himself. Look, he says, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. That's what he wants. He wants the same thing the prodigal got. He wants dad to give him gifts and get out of his way. That's why he's been working so hard. It's why he's kept his nose so clean, so that at the end of the day, he can trust not in his father's generosity, but in what he has deserved for himself. He is a self-made man, and he would have it no other way. And this is, of course, another spiritual picture, reminding us that there is more than one way to be lost. There's the prodigal way. There's, there's the way of, of self-indulgence and blatant, disgusting sin, and there's also the Presbyterian way. There's the way of... of, of uh, condescending comparisons with all those people whose outward sin looks much worse than ours. It's a matter of pride, this, this Presbyterian lostness. And that's why Jesus included the scribes and the Pharisees in his parable. He wanted them to see their spiritual pride in clearer lines than they would normally draw it for themselves. Because while they bristled at Jesus for welcoming sinners they really were just like the older brother who stood outside pouting at the banquet, believing that the only people that should receive the Father's love were the ones who had earned it. And Jesus also wanted the scribes and the Pharisees to see that even in their pride, even in their self-justification, God was still seeking them in the ministry of Jesus. This parable actually ends with more unfinished business. The father goes out and he speaks tenderly. The word actually in, in verse 31, he said to him, it's not son, the word is, is not huia, son, it's technon, child, my dear one. The father speaks to him with compassion and tenderness and he explains that there is life inside the banquet, there is life at the father's side and the question for the scribes and the Pharisees is whether they would be willing to see it or whether they'd rather stand outside under a tent of their own achievements. Whether they'd, whether they'd rather stand out there where they can throw themselves a pity party and boo-hoo because nobody ever pays attention to them and gives them what they deserve and appreciates them the way they ought to be appreciated. 
there can be an awful lot of older brother tendencies in a church like ours. A church where we're all pretty squeaky clean and pretty well put together. A church where we don't typically attract too many of those sinners straight out of the gutter. But if our vision of God is, is as a taskmaster or as a landowner or our vision of God is as some sort of tally-keeping employer who owes us something for our obedience. And we may be just as lost as the brother slaving in the field or standing outside the party. But if we know God is our Father because we know Jesus is our welcoming brother, if we have come close enough to our sin to see it for what it is, and still somehow, beyond our wildest reasons, Trust God with our unworthiness. Well, then that's a pretty good indication that we've been found by him. Well, the truth is there's more than one way to be lost. But there's always just one way to be found. And it's through the loving sacrifice of the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. It's through the arms of the welcoming father who sent his son to call us home. You join me in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this parable. We pray that we would see ourselves in it. We pray that we would see Christ. And we pray that we would see your mercy and turn to you and find life. Oh, thank you for those many that you've called out of older brother pride and younger brother prodigality. Help us, O oh Lord, to come to you and to be found loving at the right hand of our Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.